Hello and welcome back to Future Proofing Media Freedom, the series from Chatham House, Luminate and the International Centre for Journalists on the Undercurrents podcast feed. I'm Ben Horton, co-host of Undercurrents. And I'm Julie Pizzetti, Global Director of Research at ICFJ. And in this series, we're exploring the challenges facing public interest media in 2020. We're dealing not just with a pandemic, but also with what we might call a disinfodemic this year. And we're also going to explore some of the solutions that might assist independent journalism, particularly in the struggle to defend media freedom. It's great to be back with you, Ben. Absolutely. Lovely to see you, Julie. So in our last episode, we focused on the business model of news and how we can ensure the financial sustainability of journalism. And you can catch up with that episode wherever you're listening to this one. So please do go back and have a listen. But Julie, why don't you tell us a bit about the focus of our episode today? Sure. So we're calling this Misinformation Matters. And um, I already pointed to the fact that we have an escalating crisis facing independent journalism and public interest media internationally. Uh, We're seeing as a result of the pandemic an escalation of the threats to the financial viability of journalism. And we discussed that at length last week, as you mentioned. But in parallel, we're seeing states crack down on media freedom we're seeing countries around the world use COVID-19 as, as an excuse to justify restrictions uh, and crackdowns and shutdowns of all sorts. And in parallel, we're seeing what um, colleagues and I from the University of Sheffield and UNESCO have defined as a disinfodemic. So this idea that adjacent to the pandemic, we have an absolute flood of disinformation that is enabling attacks on journalists and journalism in the social media space in particular, but also making it harder to surface and find reliable public interest information produced Mm. uh, by uh, trustworthy journalists. And so This is all happening, of course, in the context of really important elections, certainly in the US where disinformation is a major theme, but also in places like Myanmar and in Western Africa. So it's really important to be able to understand that this is a crisis of the information ecosystem. And one of the most important responses I think we can explore, whether within civil society or in policymaking within democratic states in particular, or in academia or in journalism, one of the most effective things we can do is to bolster and reinforce public interest journalism. And to try and address that challenge, I've just released a report uh, with colleagues from the Tau Centre at Columbia University in the US based on something we're calling the Journalism and the Pandemic Project. And just to give you some insights into that study, particularly focused on disinformation. So we surveyed over 1,400 English-speaking journalists and we surveyed many hundreds more uh, in other language groups. But I can dig into the English language data and tell you that over 80% of our respondents said they encountered disinformation related to COVID-19 every week, and most of them encountered it much more frequently than that, many times a day for for about 30% of our respondents, for example. And two other really important data points, political leaders and elected officials, along with government-sponsored troll networks and identifiable government agencies or their spokespeople, so the people in authority 
generally speaking, within societies, those were the people and sources frequently cited as top sources of disinformation. So political leaders and elected officials as one group, 46% of our respondents identified them as being the main offenders when it came to disinformation sources. Equally important is the finding that Facebook was identified really as the most prolific spreader of disinformation. Now, that won't come as a surprise to many observers, but what is interesting is if we look at the the data that we surfaced, 66% of our respondents who were largely journalists and they were spread across 125 countries, 66% identified Facebook as the place where disinformation was spreading most prolifically. Twitter was the next biggest indicated problem within the social media ecosystem with only 42%. And I say only, it's still very significant, but it's a big gap between 42 and 66%. And if you factor in the sort of data we had about WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook Messenger, which are all, of course, owned and operated by Facebook, we have a picture where we can confirm that certainly among our respondents, Facebook is seen as the biggest enabler of disinformation. So that's just one set of data to give you a a sense of the kind of crisis uh, in journalism revolving around encounters with disinformation connected to COVID-19. And then the next challenge is, of course, for journalists to try to respond to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for the background there, Julie. I just wondered, obviously, our focus is is very much sort of the here and now and what can be done in the future. But I wanted to ask you a bit about what's happened in the last few years. Obviously, the first mainstream discussions of this disinformation phenomenon arose in 2016 after the US presidential election and then the UK's Brexit referendum and concerns over what role disinformation might have played in the results. In the intervening years, do you think that states have responded appropriately to those signals? Or do you think our current predicament that we're finding ourselves in with COVID-19 is something that could have been and should have been prevented? Yeah, big questions. And I just would highlight, I think, that even before the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which revealed the crisis of disinformation in graphic detail as regards Brexit and the US election in 2016, there was the 2016 election in the Philippines that swept Rodrigo Duterte to power. And Maria Ressa, who is uh, one of our our guests in the next episode of this um, series, refers to the Philippines as the canary in the coal mine, you know, which set off or should have set off alarms for the West about the impending erosion of democracy, not just in developing countries, but also in uh, Western liberal democracies, enabled by the viral dissemination of disinformation on those social platforms. I think um, probably the best insight I can give you comes from this global study that I did for UNESCO, uh, led by uh, Professor Kalina Boncheva at the University of Sheffield. Um, We published a book very recently called Balancing Act, Countering Disinformation While Respecting Freedom of Expression. And I think that title actually gets to the nub of the problem. So we have seen states responding in ways that are urgent and sometimes necessary, 
a consideration around regulation of social platforms, for example, which is uh, something on the table that needs to be debated. But we have also seen states over-respond, if you like, or respond in ways that undermine and threaten freedom of expression. And that is not to say that there can never be any curtailment on freedom of expression. We know that, you know, even under international human rights law, there are some exceptions. Um, and when there's imminent threat to life, or and, and that is true in the, the case of the pandemic, there can be some minor restrictions made as long as they're necessary and proportionate. But what we've seen around the world is states using the law or weaponizing the, the law, if you like, to try to restrict critical reporting, critical journalism on perhaps the, the state's own management of the pandemic. So the enactment or the uh, activation of so-called fake news laws, which have a real risk attached to them that involves the criminalization of journalism, for example. So we have real challenges here to identify the role of the state in trying to address disinformation, particularly where it threatens elections and it threatens the status of, you know, democracy. Uh, you know, there are many people commentating now that the US democratic system is on the verge of collapse. And that is a very serious scenario. We could not even imagine contemplating, you know, five or six years ago. Mm. Um, so I would say that we need to monitor what states are doing in response to disinformation very carefully to ensure that this pandemic and also the crisis of disinformation more broadly isn't used as a justification to limit, you know, the essential role of, of critical journalism in calling to account state actors, political forces and so on. But at the same time, we need to look at the role of the platforms and the culpability of the platforms in this. I mean, we still hear from Facebook and Google and, and Twitter justifications around managing this crisis at the fringes or at the edges, particularly Facebook, you know, public statements that do not, in fact, reflect the reality, public statements that suggest through their actions they're tackling disinformation connected to, you know, to COVID-19 or elections head-on and making a real difference. In fact, the ecosystem could be understood as being broken. You know, this is, this is very urgent to the extent that it's not just now a matter for states to respond and for, for journalists to call to account the platforms and the states in reference to this disinformation crisis and for civil society to advocate. It's also a matter that has attracted the attention of the UN. You know, this is in parallel with managing the pandemic is dealing with the disinfodemic. Absolutely. And you've brought out so many of the kind of key questions that we're focusing on today in this episode. And to discuss all of this, we've got a really, really great panel lined up. We're joined by Meevan Babakar, the Deputy CEO of the UK fact-checking organisation Full Fact. We're also joined by Melissa Fleming, the United Nations Undersecretary General for Global Communications, Sunny Sway, the founder of Frontier Myanmar, and Dr. Ethan Zuckerman from the Institute of Digital Public Infrastructure. It's an amazing lineup of experts, and we cover a wide range of issues, both in terms of geography and political context. And we began with a question for Sunny Sway. I'd like to start with you, if I can, Sunny. You run a public interest media organisation in Myanmar, which is a country that's become really an unfortunate case study that demonstrates 
you know, the worst impacts of viral disinformation, particularly as it intersects with racism and bigotry. The UN report underpinning current legal action against the government of Myanmar actually referred to Facebook having played a determining role in human rights abuses against the Rohingya people. So I'm wondering what you learned you know, as a founder uh, and editor of a news organisation about trying to navigate a disinformation crisis of that scale and perhaps also how you uh, at Frontier Myanmar try and confront this crisis that we're dealing with. Yes, I mean, in Myanmar, Facebook is everything. And, you know, starting from 2013, the, the, the technology basically strike the uh, mainstream media and uh, Facebook becomes suddenly so popular. And um, a lot of people, they haven't had a laptop uh, or desktop in their life. I mean, they just straight on to, to Facebook using the uh, good secondhand Chinese smartphones. And uh, Facebook is basically super popular and uh, everyone is taking advantage on, on Facebook. And it's been a huge learning curve for publisher like us, a publication like, like us, because uh, starting from 2017, because of the Rohingya crisis, Facebook actually, uh, in the beginning, they were not really paying attention to Myanmar at all because Myanmar is not economically uh, important for Facebook. But then after, after we have attacks from ASA and then uh, Rohingya crisis, Facebook started to to get aware, you gotta handle this uh, very carefully. So since then, they hire a lot of people, uh, Myanmar-speaking people, uh, working for Facebook now. And every day we have like waves of disinformation coming in because of the religious reason, because of the election around the corner, uh, and also because of COVID. We currently uh, we're having a second wave. And, and things are going a bit crazy. And we really have to transform our newsroom from a, a traditional uh, newsroom into an innovative newsroom. Uh, that means we are now have a, a team of data scientists, uh, a combination of the tech people and, and the uh, investigative journalists working together, basically tackling on these uh, issues. And it's been really uh, challenging for us because things are a bit going crazy in terms of health crisis, in terms of election, and, and in terms of religion. Uh, these three combinations, we are seeing a lot of people taking advantage on social media, uh, basically trying to feed wrong information to the voters or basically trying to tackle the government and also government is trying to do something to the uh, ethnics, political parties and, and stuff like that. So what we do is we basically monitor these people, pages and influencers and pretty much we, we've been monitoring more than different accounts on uh, election and COVID, what we do is we come up with the, the reports. Uh, we come up with the uh, investigative stories. And then also we work very closely with uh, Facebook. We report whatever we see. And we currently, I mean, we recently published an in-depth story covering about these people uh, systematically spreading the, the misinformation 
and uh, Facebook throws more than five accounts now, and there are a lot more to come. So that's where we are now. Basically, it's quite tough because, you know, by the time we know that there is a misinformation, it's already circled maybe three, four times. And then uh, please beware that digital literacy and uh, media literacy in Myanmar is quite limited. That, that's why we are struggling to fight against misinformation. But we've been trying to do the best we can at this point. Thanks very much, Sunny. Yeah, that was fascinating, Sunny. Ethan, I wonder if I could turn to you and, and just ask a, a maybe slightly broader question about this phenomenon of disinformation that we're seeing at the moment within this crisis. From Sunny, we heard there a lot about the influence of social media platforms like Facebook. I guess I wanted to know from you what you think distinguishes contemporary disinformation from the kind of bog standard propagandizing political electioneering that has been a feature of elections for, for centuries. In this sense, is disinformation something that's uniquely a 21st century phenomenon? There's really two things that make contemporary disinformation a little different from what we faced in the past. The first is the fact that we've had a shift towards user-generated content as the dominant form of content on the internet, and frankly now as really the dominant form of content worldwide. We saw this real change around late 2000s, 2010 is, is sort of a definitive moment for that change. And at that point, Almost everybody has a microphone, which is wonderful in some senses. We hear from people that we simply didn't hear from before. We hear voices of people on the ground in Myanmar. We hear people who had been really systemically excluded from the media before. But it also means that people who have fringe views, conspiracy views, views that have been widely debunked, now also have a platform. The second thing that's happened is that we have these social media platforms that are unusual in a couple of ways. They are optimized for engagement. And what that means is the more sensational, the more emotional a piece of content is, the more likely it is to get shared and amplified. The second thing, and we don't talk about this nearly often enough, is that these platforms are designed with their sort of governance, their moderation of content as an afterthought. It is literally the last thing thought about rather than the first thing thought about. And so what that means is that Facebook somehow claims to be a community of 2 billion people. There is no such thing as a community of 2 billion people. There might be a community of 20 people. There might be a community of 20,000 people. But there is no community of 2 billion people. And so what it means is that Facebook is trying to moderate conversations in Myanmar in a language they don't speak, around political issues they don't understand, and they don't have investment in them. They don't have understanding of them. And the people in Myanmar who actually should be involved with those conversations about what is and what is not appropriate content, they have almost no voice at all. In the long run, we have to move away from this model of these giant ungovernable platforms that have no role for the people who actually use them in governing them. In the long run, we need much smaller social network tools that are actually governed by the people who use them and are impacted by them. In the short run, though, we're going to have to do something to deal with the problem of mis- and disinformation because people have learned to build content that spreads incredibly widely and can have really profound impact 
within the current system, which frankly just doesn't work very well. I mean, Melissa Fleming, listening to all of this from the on the ground experience to the, the big picture created by Ethan there, I'm wondering from your perspective inside the United Nations, what are the most pressing global implications that keep you and other UN officials awake at night? And, and how are you collectively trying to combat them? Yes, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a bigger question, but if we just take COVID-19, because I think it really demonstrates the role of mis- and disinformation in our world and our ecosystem so well. Um, in fact, it's quite shocking what has been revealed, I think, to many, because people like Ethan and, and others you know, may have been aware of how problematic the situation was, the way information and misinformation, disinformation was traveling. I think when we faced the biggest global health crisis, crisis in our time, we realized that this was not just a crisis of global health. This was a crisis of communications. Mm. And what we realized was exactly what Ethan was saying, that the content that was reaching people was the content because of the algorithms on the platforms where most people are getting their information was the content that happened to be the most entertaining, the content that created the most emotional reaction and not the content that had the best public health guidance. Okay, now some people could say, well, that's the fault of WHO or the public health organizations because they're boring. You know, they upload PDF documents instead of creating a video that is going to entertain me. So perhaps, yes, and I think we all as institutions could get much better and have to in the short term, as Ethan also said, fix of having to deal, you know, to operate in this crisis situation. However, there does need to be more measures taken from the platforms that enable the content to travel. And this is uh, what the UN is also advocating for, to make sure that we strike a balance so that we're not totally suppressing information and media freedom and Mm. freedom of speech. But at the same time, we are in a crisis. People are dying. They are taking information that they're finding online and believing it, not because they're stupid, but because it is a scary time. And they're seeking guidance. And the way social media works is that influencers who may be in their communities or in their families um, are telling them, look at this. So just you know, to conclude in the short term, what we at the United Nations are doing is working with a number of partners around the world, you know, trying to, number one, educate people about misinformation and disinformation. We have an initiative called Verified. We've recruited information volunteers across the world, so-called you know, kind of digital first responders. And we have over 40,000 who are signed up and signed on, and we provide them information about how misinformation, disinformation travels. But we also produce content that is more consumable, that's based on science, based on facts, but works well in a social media environment. And finally, we are working with the platforms to see if we can really influence some meaningful change so that this kind of information gets stopped in its tracks. I mean, this reminds me of a recent piece by Carol Cadwallader, who's a UK-based journalist who, of course, is responsible for us knowing, along with the help she got from whistleblowers, knowing about the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And she recently cast Facebook as a state and not a UN member state, but North Korea was her uh, parallel. So, you know, we are now in an interesting situation, aren't we, where 
we see geopolitics also really swirling in the realm of vast and vastly powerful commercial entities, a company like Facebook. So what does that mean, you know, in terms of diplomacy, when you're trying to navigate a crisis like this, which you've very rightly said is a and not just a human rights crisis, it's not just a pandemic. You know, there's a crisis here which has been variously called a disinfodemic or an infodemic mm. uh, because of the role of disinformation in really uh, deepening and worsening the symptoms and the, the uh, consequences of COVID-19. So you're working with Facebook now, you've pointed out. You've got all of these challenges trying to balance disinformation and misinformation. But just to draw on some research which we've just published at the International Centre for Journalists, which is looking at the way journalism is responding to disinformation, particularly in the context of COVID-19, we found through a global survey that journalists identified Facebook as the biggest vector when it comes to disinformation. And they also identified political and government sources as among the top sources of disinformation. So I realise that's a a lot of context to provide there, but just what can be done at an intergovernmental organisation, but also at a state-based level from your perspective to respond Mm -hmm. effectively? Well, Julie, I think also maybe read your study. It's fascinating. And I think it provides, you know, incredible research, but also uh, recommendations for how one could at the international and at the state level from various approaches address the problem. But of course, yes, we are dealing with tech giants who, you know, have uh, assumed more accountability in the area perhaps of COVID-19, but there are other areas that we're very concerned about, and that is the area of hate. And we, we have Sonny here from Myanmar, who is case in point of what can happen when misinformation, disinformation goes out of control, and that the consequence that it can have on human lives, which is frightening and should have shocked the world into complete action. And it has definitely spurred change at Facebook, but has that change uh, gone far enough? I think that's the question that we need to ask. We are very concerned at this moment with what coming back to the COVID-19 crisis with how do we get out of this crisis, right? You know, it's not going to be the ultimate solution, but we're not going to finally get out of of COVID-19 and emerge from it without a vaccine. The crazy thing is, is that, you know, we have an amazing global effort right now in record time, but also using all the steps of safety and efficacy, we might reach a vaccine in record time that would be really a way to protect our world and to keep it safe. We have a mechanism in place that would allow for affordable, accessible you know, distribution to every person on this earth, not just the rich, but also the poor. However, because of misinformation and deliberate disinformation about vaccines, the origin of them, the motivation behind them, the safety of them. We're seeing growing numbers in polls of people because of what they're being exposed to on social media platforms saying they would not take the vaccine if it were to come about. So we might have this wonderful vaccine and not enough people to take it because of our information environment and because of the power of the purveyors of disinformation, uh, their ability to produce and spread emotive content. I think probably all of you probably had one family member share the pandemic video that went completely viral based on discredited science authored by a discredited scientist. And 
nevertheless, it managed to you know circulate through the internet and get millions of views. The content that we're trying to produce that is you know based on science, content that would dispel all of these myths and take people through the process, it needs a boost. Anyway, I'm conscious we have a great panel here, and I, I'll leave it to the others to to move on. But we are obsessed with this communication ecosystem now and all the problems with it. And we're doing um, everything that we can in the short term to navigate it and in the long term to try to improve and and make uh, the information environment much better and more conducive so that human beings can access good content, good information so that they can identify and that the best information bubbles to the top. Fascinating. Thank you, Melissa. Meevan, I just wonder if I could pick up a little bit with you something that Melissa was talking about at the end there about this idea of information systems. And I wondered whether one aspect of that that we've maybe not covered so far is the role of the media itself within this information ecosystem and thinking about your sphere of activity, which is obviously very much based in the UK. In that context, I think it would be fair to say that the media landscape in the UK is increasingly becoming polarised, quite partisan. Different outlets are associated with different political positions. A lot of work is being done on sort of the blurring of the line between reporting and opinion writing. And I wondered whether you think that this sort of polarisation of the media is also playing into this sort of corruption of the information ecosystem. When you're doing your work with Full Facts, what do you think has been the impact of the polarised media landscape on your work? I think it's important to note that if we look at some of the top line figures of what the current state is with the public and the media, two thirds of the public don't trust TV journalists. Three quarters don't trust newspaper journalists. And this is from two YouGov surveys. But if you think that's direct direct a person it's kind of like a very fragmented media landscape and you're getting to the point where people have individualistic media consumptions mine is very different to yours my 19 year old brothers is probably way different to both of us and I think that that fragmentation is a really important part of this but then if you go one above if you look at what's happening with shared instances of media for example broadcasters are considered the most trusted source of news during the pandemic. And that's according to Ofcom, somewhere between 72 and 82% for different broadcasters. That's shockingly high. <laughs> and that's because there's still considered a shared moment of information across lots of people at once. And we're having fewer and fewer of those as a society, frankly. It's interesting when things like the Facebook third-party fact-checking scheme allow fact-checkers to add an overlay onto pieces of misinformation that still allows somebody to share it, but gives somebody extra information before they share it. You could argue that that's creating a shared moment across hundreds of thousands of people before they share it. So I think the question I think about quite a lot when thinking about systemic changes to these problems is how can we create more of those moments Search, for example, Google search or any search is one of the biggest shared experiences in terms of finding information. We know that there are huge data voids and there's really great work done by Jenna Boyd on that that says there are very key issues that people search for and don't find good information on. And that leaves a gap for others to fill with much worse information. And as we just heard from everyone, 
the information that incites emotional reactions are the ones that travel further. That's always been the case. That's been the case before the internet came along, but the internet has just exacerbated it. So what does like this kind of more fragmented world mean for fact checkers is that it's not enough to put one fact check out into the world. It's not enough to do one media interview. You have to start thinking about which communities of people are you reaching? Are you reaching them well enough? Are you there at the point of the post? Has that interaction made any kind of difference? Are there communities that are affected more than others that are more inoculated than others? My mother is Middle Eastern and still sends me mad conspiracy theories from Facebook, even though she knows my job is a fact checker and every single time it's wrong. <laughs> but I think it goes to a point that there are some places that are well served by fact checkers right now around the world. But actually other places like the Middle East has very few fact checkers. And this goes to a point about press freedoms. Actually, you can't really have fact checkers that are doing good work or journalists that are doing good accountability work without some press freedoms in place. So the small, small question is actually linked to so many big systemic issues. And I think that the most important thing that I could say about it is that it's not just one problem, it's many different problems. And it's really important that any response that we come up with as a society is proportionate and is clearly identified, is, is actually, it's a proportionate response to a clearly identified harm. I think there are so many people suggesting answers right now that are a catch-all for like eight different problems. And it's really important that we don't do that. We make sure we're focusing on one clearly identified harm and answering that one specifically. As with all of these sort of solutions, even the Facebook fact-checking system that you mentioned there as well, all of these things are in their infancy and have their flaws and don't necessarily address the whole problem and, and maybe can't. I just wondered as a follow-up for the benefit of our international audience, maybe you could tell us a bit more about how Full Fact works and approaches this problem and, and what sort of interventions you're making in this UK information space. Sure, absolutely. So Full Fact was set up 10 years ago now. And we are the UK's independent fact-checking charity. I feel like I've had the career of a 40-year-old white British man and like been through so many elections now that I can probably retire. But basically what we do is we believe that fact-checking is the free speech response to misinformation. So by giving people more information at the time when they need it, they can choose whether to believe something or not. Our fact-checks day-to-day -day, we'll look at what is trending across the internet, what are the claims that have had the most interest, attention, and we'll make a choice to fact-check that. Once we fact-check it, we'll be calling up the person who made the claim, we'll be going to the best available primary sources, and we'll be trying to find out, A, how did this person come to this claim? What, what went wrong, essentially? Or what went right, if it is correct? And is there better information available out there? And we package this up and put it out into the world so that people have essentially information without an agenda. They can check absolutely everything themselves. We don't ask people to trust us. We actually ask that you don't trust us. Everything is linked to primary sources so that you can do your own checking and build your own relationship with us as you see fit. But then it's, it's not just about putting good information into the world. It's also about taking bad information out. So when we see that something has been written about incorrectly or has been taken out of context, for example, we also have 
a part of our work which is about corrections. So we will be calling up that journalist, we'll be calling up that broadcaster, we'll be calling up Facebook and saying, this is wrong, this needs to be taken down or this needs to be changed. And we're collecting evidence over the long run about where are the places that need the most attention, where are the places that are causing the most harm. And then in the long run, what are the good responses as a society that we could be putting in place that are systemic responses that stop the tide, essentially. And we also dabble a little bit in tech. So we've got, it's not enough to just put one fact check out into the world. You want to spot every single time a fact check is repeated, an inaccurate claim is repeated. And I think this is one of the things that people throw at fact checkers as well. Fact checking is great, but it can never scale. You know, you're only 10 fact checkers. How can you take on the whole of Facebook? Obviously, that's true. We're not trying to take on the whole of Facebook or the whole of the internet. But it's really interesting to me that there definitely are solvable tech problems in this space. It is a relatively easy, it's actually quite hard, but it's, it's, it's easier than um, to spot every single time something is repeated than you would think. But we don't have agreement across platforms, for example, to share data or to make that open. But if we did, that would really help us in understanding more about the misinformation landscape. In the book that Melissa was referring to just before, Mivan will come back to discuss this a bit later, which was a report published by the UN about responses to disinformation and trying to balance freedom of expression risks against the need to respond with urgency and deliberately. We have several chapters looking at fact-checking and and fact-checking responses and the challenges involved. And, and one of the recommendations is around the need, of course, to be free to fact-check what you determine to be, as fact-checkers, vital misinformation or disinformation that warrants investigation and notification. And I think it's important to note that that's one of the areas that Facebook still has real challenges, and not just Facebook, Twitter as well, when it comes to political disinformation. So I think, yeah, just in terms of the global responses, one of the recommendations we made was that the platforms allow that autonomy in terms of not just investigating but then flagging on those platforms and allow that agency to exist for the fact-checkers. I want to come to you now, Sunny, again, as, as you know, the person on the ground in this group who can really speak to living through the, the worst impacts, as you've described just previously, what do you think it is about certain societies that makes them perhaps more vulnerable to disinformation crises? And I'm suggesting here that it's not particular characteristics of a cultural race, it's, it's rather structural and systemic, but what are those risk factors? And also what do you need right now for, whether it's intergovernmental organisations or funders, what do you need right now to help you navigate this second wave of COVID-19 disinformation in parallel with a really important election. The most important thing for Myanmar right now is, is the capacity building. I think only starting from 2013, people have access to internet and you know so many things uh, uh, online crimes and people get cheated, you know, young people get pregnant because they see they chat on, online. So stuff like that. So Myanmar is so late when we experience the internet and especially uh, Facebook. So, I mean, this is what we've been trying to, to do. We, we try to educate everywhere I go, all, all our readers that do not believe what you see on Facebook. 
please double check, triple check what, please do not share. Please read the whole article and, and you know, just think of whether it makes sense or not uh, before sharing. Uh, so that will be the, the first important thing. And second thing is, you know, we media are a gatekeeper, right? We always try to filter what is fake and what is real. So what I'm trying to say, it's, it's quite difficult for us to sustain our business model nowadays. And um, it's quite difficult because everything has changed after a technology strike. I call it digital tsunami in Myanmar. So we really have to, to change the way we report, the way we create the revenue stream and everything. So the second important thing will be like how media houses would keep our survival. Uh, that will be the second thing because everyone is in Myanmar, everyone is really struggling. The private uh, sector media, it's collapsing. We are seeing one after another uh, disappearing. And um, everyone is now consuming everything from online. So we have tons of challenges. Um, but what we are trying to do is just keep our journalism, quality of our journalism high. The only way we can do, and um, Ivan said, don't try to fix you know, 100 problems uh, at the time, just focus on one issue at the time. That's what we've been trying to do. So what we have built is that uh, a source that people come and check, like they see something breaking on the, uh, on the internet and they will come and check with us, like whether it's true or not. And also we, we don't do breaking news. We do only a lot of investigative reporting. And um, I think that's all we can do now. Like I said in the beginning, we basically embrace the technology. You know, I, I used to hate Google, Facebook. They took all the revenue, blah, 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 blah. But now I am, uh, our mindset is tech giants can make money. I mean, we have to be able to make different revenue streams using the technology. So we, we are repackaging our uh, uh, content in, in a different way to, to create uh, the different revenue streams and, uh, and trying to survive. And uh, every day just fighting with this disinformation and misinformation, it's quite challenging. And it does seem like such an, an unbalanced fight, doesn't it? Because you've got some partnerships with the tech giants that's almost like throwing you scraps of funding. You know, you're working with them to try and serve their attempts to deal with disinformation. But at the same time, massive profits of these companies are not being directed at scale into the propping up of genuine public interest media. That's yeah. more of an observation than, <laughs> from an expert perspective than a question, but I think this is a critical issue to consider around needs, isn't it, as we go forward? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yes. Thank you. I wonder if we can move to another geographical context now as well. And Ethan, whether I could talk to you about the upcoming US election. Obviously, it's been dominating our headlines over here in Europe as well for months, but it's soon to be reaching its climax on, on November 3rd. And I think, I mean, it would be interesting to hear your take on, on the extent to which we've seen disinformation campaigns playing a role in the election so far, and maybe also what public interest media specifically could be doing about it? What do you, what sort of strategies exist in the US to, to counter this disinformation? Sure. So when we think about mis and disinformation historically, 
It's usually been about misinforming people on a particular claim or a particular idea. So we see disinformation trying to destroy a candidate's reputation or misrepresent her positions or something along those lines. It's been very different in the Trump era. And what it's really become is is what I refer to as the era of unreality. What has happened under Trump is that there are two parallel realities taking place. In the reality that I live in, the United States is in enormous economic trouble. It's incredibly partisan. And we are uh, doing a terrible, terrible job with COVID-19 to the point where we're an international disgrace. If you were speaking to someone who was politically on the right, there is a good chance that they would see exactly the opposite. And beyond seeing Trump's incredible victory over COVID, they would tell you that there's an entire bureaucratic deep state apparatus that is working to thwart him at every possible turn. So it's a very weird moment. We simply aren't living in the same nation right now. We've, we've reached a point of mis- or disinformation where we've got dueling realities. And we will see what happens in those dueling realities in the wake of the election. I think everyone predicts that this will be a disputed election, that it will end up going into our court system, and that at the end of the day, it will be a debate between uh, what will probably be a popular majority voting for Joe Biden versus some pretty widespread attempts to argue for a rigged election and some sort of a conspiracy that's trying to remove Trump from power. How do you deal with this? It's really very challenging. One of the reasons that's so challenging in the United States is that there's no safe anchor within our media ecosystem. So on the right, Fox News is widely trusted, whereas on the left, people don't view Fox News as anything other than propaganda. On the left, National Public Radio, The New York Times, CNN are all widely trusted. None of them are trusted at all by the right. So there's no single point of fact that sort of everyone can agree on. This is one of the things that comes from a public broadcaster that's enormously important. If you have a trusted public broadcaster, if you have a system that produces independent, carefully reviewed public broadcasting, not everyone's going to agree with the coverage, but at least it serves as an anchor into reality. The U.S. doesn't have a proper public broadcaster. We have a voluntary media system rather than a public media system. National Public Radio and the public broadcasting system, they are both almost entirely donation supported. And the donation money does come primarily from the left. They are viewed with suspicion from the right. This is a moment where it would be very, very helpful to have genuine taxpayer-supported independent public media in the United States. Unfortunately, it's also a moment where it would be incredibly difficult to create that system. But the problem that Sonny is seeing in Myanmar, the problem that everyone is seeing around, what the internet has done is radically change the economics around media. Newspapers in the United States were able to be an incredibly profitable business for more than half of a century because they had a near monopoly on delivering local advertising. When they lost that monopoly, the prices of those ads fell by at least a factor of 10, by some calculations, a factor of 50. 
And so it's not just that Google and Facebook ate the newspaper's lunch. It's that that lunch is actually not as big as it used to be. There's now so many different ways of targeting those local audiences. The tragedy in the United States is that we put our access to independent, credible media on that financial model, which fell apart. What we now need to do is reconsider what you actually need in terms of news to be a full participant in a democracy, because news in the state of unreality that we are in is not supportive of democratic elections. Can I come in there and ask you, Melissa, to respond to this? And I know it's a, you know, it's a very complex issue, but our research with journalists at ICFJ has separately found, as I said, that political sources of disinformation are among the biggest challenges, and we're not alone. We've found, you know, in recent weeks, similar research being published by Cornell and the Berkman Klein Center, for example. What do you do in the UN context about trying to tackle? the source of disinformation when political actors, and I'll nominate Donald Trump, as Ethan has just alluded to, providing disinformation on everything from voting habits through to cures mm. for COVID-19 as a disease. So how do, you, how do you try and manage that? I mean, one of the recommendations we made in that UN report was that states should avoid peddling disinformation as a, as a political objective and to specifically avoid dark PR firms, you know, the sort of manufacturing mm. of ecosystems that turn disinformation viral. But what can an intergovernmental organisation like the UN do to try and bring that about? I mean, is it time for resolutions that really do attempt to enforce that kind of recommendation? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's important to understand there are many sources of misinformation and disinformation. It could be even a very small actor who, you know, before the social media age would have only been heard by two or three people. And that piece of content can explode and travel to all corners of the world. But the most dangerous and this is this is was true before the social media age it's just amplified and exacerbated by social media is when the leadership the political leadership is the source of disinformation or misinformation and of course then not only does that have the potential to spread far and wide and be believed by many more people but it also compels the news media to cover it as well, and thereby also giving it more oxygen than it should warrant. Uh, so it's it's a very, very complex problem that, that goes back in time, but is made worse by this new information environment. We at the UN see ourselves as and are trying to be the sources of science-based factual information that the public can trust we are really investing in our own ability to be a platform. We have a news service we ha- you know that is that reaches uh, people in languages all over the world. We have country operations with their own communications arms. We work with media partners and influencers and through them are able to extend our content and our messaging that is responsible. But also, you know, the Secretary General does call out leaders who are spreading misinformation that is damaging. He himself is a leader on the global stage and does, you know, attempt uh, at every possibility to be that voice of truth and of uh, facts and of science, but also of solidarity uh, at a time when we're seeing 
you know, rising messaging that is dividing us inside our own countries, but as as a community of nations. So at a time when we actually, in order to defeat the coronavirus, need to come together more than ever before. So yes, in short um, and in very general terms, uh, this is what we're doing. I think you know taking the recommendations from the report that you authored would be also a good step. We need to activate change. So thank you very much, and and hopefully the listeners will get a chance uh, to see that great UNESCO report that was co-authored by your institution, Julie. Okay, thank you. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm just going to abuse my position as the chair to ask a really horrible difficult question at the end of each of you the same question to to all of you and and sorry if it feels unfair but what I would like to know is based on what we've heard so far throughout all of this conversation and with the range of geographies that we've got discussed here how do you think we as governments civil society or even just individual citizens worried about this sort of thing what can we be doing to support public interest media to counter disinformation and build trust in facts or renew trust in facts. And I'd love to hear each of your thoughts on on this, but I'm going to ask for the kind of one minute elevator pitch from each of you, Um, starting, I think, if I may, with me then. Sure. So in two parts, what I think individuals should be doing is really looking inwards when they are faced with something that incites an emotional reaction in them really try and understand where that comes from in themselves. I think that's probably the most important thing that a person could be doing. And then what should governments, organizations, et cetera, be doing? I think that it's really important that we have, like I said earlier, proportionate responses to these problems and to actually have understood what the problem is that we're trying to solve. Nobody can tell me right now how much misinformation there is in the world. We don't even have good estimates. And I think that when you're trying to solve a problem and you don't have actually the breakdown of what does this even look like, what are the different types, what harms does it lead to, and you don't have those in proportion, then you end up over-regulating or creating too many rules. So I think it's really important that we're, we're careful about how we go about handling this. Thank you so much. Can I come to Sunny now? So basically, what would like what I would like to suggest is like uh, the, the difference between the the social media and the public interest uh, media is like we accountable uh, responsible media and uh, so the readers the consumers are supposed to know the difference and you know when I see something really horribly bad and I was like no I don't trust this let me double check so that's. I used to fall for it all the time, but now it's becoming a habit. Yeah, uh, uh, sometimes it's too good to be true. So uh, you really have to just double, triple check what you're reading, what you're feeling, what you're seeing uh, at the point. So um, I think this accountable, responsible media is the only thing to tackle the wrong information. So uh, uh, I would like to encourage everyone to support uh, public interest media. Uh, so do not do not trust what you see on the Facebook. <laughs> <Again>. <laughs> Thank you, Sonny. <laughs> Ethan, could I come to, to you for your thoughts now? Sure. The advice that I'm giving to everyone who works in this field is to stop focusing on fixing Facebook. Facebook doesn't want to be fixed, and Facebook will work very hard to avoid being fixed. 
what we actually have to start doing is imagining worlds that have better, more responsible platforms that have a civic goal behind them. And that's the first step towards actually building them. The world that we're living in right now is really only 10 or 15 years old. Social media as we know it is quite new. This is not necessarily the future that we are doomed to live in, but it is the future that we're doomed to live in if we assume that Facebook will continue to be the center of the ecosystem and that we couldn't build something that's much better and much better for us. We need to start imagining it as the first step towards actually doing it. Lovely stuff. Thank you, Ethan. And, and last word to Melissa Fleming, please. Well, I think building on what just Ethan just said, it's, you know, the social media companies are really like the teenagers of our media world. And, you know, they have a lot of growing up to do. And the independent media, the traditional media, independent public service media, uh, you know, are the adults and the adults are aging and suffering. And we need to, I think, hopefully, there has been a, a global kind of reckoning and a, a shift towards uh, valuing our elders, <laughs> which are the public interest media who, you know, do play such an important role in the health of our democracies and our societies. We worry, particularly in developing countries, and I think what Sonny's plea is, is a case in point that there's a threat of a media extinction in many countries around the world. But even, you know, I'm sitting in the United States and, and local media is dying. So we need urgently to bolster the independent public service media that has served us so well in the past and that we've neglected and, and forgotten. Well, thanks, everybody. Those final thoughts are really challenging and in some ways inspiring and tempted as we are uh, to follow through on the, the age metaphor there to yell, get off my grass to all of the people who are sharing untruths and fanning uh, disinformation. I think, you know, it's it, it, this does feel like a period of rebalancing, albeit one with extraordinary urgency. So thank you very much, uh, Melissa Fleming, the Undersecretary General for Global Communications at the United Nations, Sunny Sway, founder and CEO of Frontier Myanmar, Ethan Zuckerman, founder of the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure, and also Mivan Babakar, who is the uh, Deputy CEO of Full Fact. Thanks again. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to all of our guests for taking part in such an important conversation. We'll be back soon with one more episode in the Future Proofing Media Freedom series, where we'll be exploring contemporary threats to the safety of journalists and their right to report, as well as our parallel right to access information. And for the final episode, we have a stellar lineup of guests, including Maria Ressa and David Kay, who's just finished a six-year term as the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression. If you'd like to find out more about the disinformation crisis at the heart of the COVID-19 pandemic, you can read ICFJ's new report in partnership with the Tau Centre at Columbia University. You'll find it at icfj.org and you're looking for the Journalism and the Pandemic Project. Also, you can download for free the book I mentioned that I co-authored for the UN, which is called Balancing Act, Countering Disinformation While Respecting Freedom of Expression. And you'll find that at UNESCO as well as the ITU website. You're probably listening to this on the Undercurrents podcast feed. And if you enjoyed what you heard, there are over 70 previous episodes to work your way through. Make sure, if you can, to subscribe and leave a review on your podcast app as it makes it far easier for people to find us.
To keep up with the rest of Chatham House's work, you can follow us on Twitter at Chatham House or visit our swanky new website at www.chathamhouse.org. Thanks again for joining us and see you for the next episode. Bye for now. Bye.